My name is Maggie Bell, and I'm an assistant curator at the Norton Simon Museum. My current exhibition, The Expressive Body, Memory, Devotion, Desire, 1400-1750, explores the physical and emotional impact of representations of the human body and the historical role of the five senses in experiencing works of art. This series of conversations with scholars in the fields of art education, literature, and anthropology brings these themes into the present by addressing the role of the body and the senses in engaging with art today. I'm so pleased to introduce Georgina Klieg, professor of English at the University of California, Berkeley, where she teaches courses on creative writing, representations of disability in literature, and disability memoir, for which she has received distinguished teaching awards. Georgina's own writing entwines scholarly research, autobiography, and cultural critique to explore topics including the representation of blindness in literature, film, and language, biographies of disability icons such as Helen Keller, and the diverse sensory possibilities of engaging with works of art. Georgina's approach is often grounded in lived experience and practice, apparent in both her writing and collaborations with artists. Her 2018 book, More Than Meets the Eye, What Blindness Brings to Art, addresses the many relationships between blindness and art, including representation, artistic practice, accessibility, and knowledge acquisition beyond the sense of sight. This book has shaped my thinking around multisensory understandings of art, both past and present, and is an essential read for all museum practitioners. Georgina, I'm delighted to welcome you to this conversation. Thank you, Maggie. I'm very happy to be here with you. I've gotten so much from your writing on museums and arts engagement, and this ranges from so many topics around accessibility and audience participation and practice and navigating museum spaces. And so I want to ask, what has drawn you to museums as a field of research, as a way of thinking? What draws me to arts museums, I think, is um, basically a biographical accident that uh, both my parents were visual artists. So although I became blind when I was about 10 or 11, I, I grew up in the art world in New York. Um, I spent a lot of time in New York art museums and art galleries and uh, artists' studios. Uh, so I, I would claim that I know a lot about visual art, even though I don't see in a normative way. Um, and I think I've always enjoyed art museums. I, I really, I mean, it sounds a little sentimental, but I'm really kind of taken with the idea of art museums as sort of palaces for the, the people. You know, I sort of enjoy the atmosphere of, you know, the, the great museums of the world. Um, and so it, it seems like I've spent a lot of time in, in art museums. And it was really only once I, I uh, I started writing about my blindness that I started thinking about visual art uh, and that sort of grew into uh, writing about uh, museums, museum access, 
the sort of psychological and epistemological and political underpinnings of museum access programs uh, around the world? I think that's an interesting point. The political function of museums, the social impact that museums can have, even in how people navigate these spaces. Is there an expectation placed on visitors in how to engage with art, engage with museum spaces? Definitely, and I, I think it's changing. It's been changing uh, over the, the, the decade. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's always been in process. Um, going back to, you know, before there were museums called museums, uh, you know, there, there were private art collections uh, where uh, people, um, privileged people who had art collections would invite visitors to their homes or their galleries and, and give people an occasion to look or interact with the artwork. And then as museums became public spaces and, and uh, you know, allowed uh, the public in, um, uh, the ways that, that the public was supposed to interact with artwork became very regimented. Uh, and basically it became a sort of uh, vision only um, uh, procedure, uh, you know, and I think that more or less continues to, to today. More recently, I think museums have been interested in thinking about different ways for people to interact with art, um, mainly as a way to bring more people in. Um, uh, you know, if the, if the public is feeling restricted, restrained, uh, you have to move in a certain way. You 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 should if you're speaking, you should speak in a, a quiet voice. Um, but maybe uh, more people would would want to come into museums if some of those restrictions uh, uh, were lifted or uh, rethought. Uh, but definitely, I think museums have very very specific ideas about who the public is, who's who, you know, who's being represented by this institution. I, I will say in doing this exhibition, which in which I wanted to really talk about this multi-sensory interaction with these works of art pre, pre-1800, I, I write a lot about touch and how these small bronzes would have been caressed and handled. And, and of course, our public is completely deprived of the opportunity to do so. That's one of the things that I that I love about your writing is that for people who, who can't touch works of art, and, and even as a curator, I don't touch works of art as often as, as people might think. Uh, so I, I've benefited so much from hearing and reading your descriptions of texture and touching works of art, um, because it is something that's lost uh, on a lot of a lot of viewers. And, and I get so that leads me to my next question is, where is there space for touch in museums? And is touch being activated in certain ways? Well, I would say that um, touch, <laughs> touch has a place in museums. I think even in the 19th century, uh, there was this idea of, of allowing blind people to touch art. Um, 
so they're they're sort of in the mindset of museums the idea that 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 blind people get this privilege and i'm glad to hear you say that you appreciate what i what i've written about it because that was sort of the whole point because i leap at the chance to touch art whenever whenever there's a touch tour available at any museum or gallery or any place that i go i take advantage um but it always feels a little disappointed you know i get something out of the experience and but it feels like um i have almost an obligation to uh share share that experience with people who don't have that privilege i've been uh encouraging museums to sort of uh, collate and collect the responses of other blind people and maybe you know make that available um somehow to the the public who don't get to touch because i will say one one thing about any time i've been on a touch tour where there have been other people around people really want to know what it's like you know, strangers will say, what does that feel like? What What are you getting out of that experience? Um, I mean, I think everybody, <laughs> if they had the chance, would want to get their hands on art. Um, but uh, due to conservation concerns, that isn't possible. But I think, I think there's a way that um, uh, information about touch could be included in descriptions of art in, um, uh, collection labels in in sort of uh, critical responses uh, to art. So I think it's kind of an untapped resource um, to talk about the the, the tactile and haptic uh, aesthetics. Yeah, absolutely. I and I think that was something that really struck me about your essay, uh, The Art of Touch, Lending a Hand to the Sighted Majority, was you offered a kind of toolkit or a way of identifying the types of information that you can acquire through touch. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on how you came to this toolkit, how you identified these different kinds of information. A lot of what I've learned in recent years about touching art began with a collaboration with an artist, a visually impaired artist based in Australia, whose name is Fayan Devi. I'll spell that. That's D apostrophe E V I E. Um, and we did a number of projects in the San Francisco Bay Area at different arts institutions. And one of the first things that we discovered was that uh a work of art a, a sculpture kind of tells you um how it wants to be touched so sometimes uh you know one feels compelled to touch delicately with the fingertips maybe to sort of trace uh, the outlines of the object sometimes you have a feeling that you want to grasp something um or manipulate something moves make something move make something happen uh, and sometimes the interaction is even pretty rigorous uh, physical so that was the first insight we came up with uh, and then in in other explorations i just started to think about you know a lot of times people think that that touching a sculpture is about form recognition you know that somehow i'm tracing the outline of this of this sculpture 
and it's creating a, an, a mental image in my brain. Um, and that may be the case, but it's not necessarily the most interesting thing about touching art, just as looking at a painting or looking at a sculpture is not just about recognizing, oh, that's a horse or that's a woman sitting in a chair. You know, I mean, that's not necessarily the, the point of seeing an artwork. And so similarly with touch, it's not just about identifying what the object is, what's being depicted, but it's also about um, surfaces. It's about um, uh, a texture and temperature. It's about density and sonority. Uh, that is to say, what happens when you tap or you knock on the, the surface? Is it hollow? Is it resonant? Um, uh, you know, with larger works of art, it's about how does it cast shadows? How does it affect the airflow around it? Um, it's also about thinking about the different uh, uh, organs of touch. You know, that touching is not just about the fingertips. It's about the, the whole hand. Um, it's about the, the palms of the hands versus the back of the hands. Um, it's about the muscle, muscles that you engage with your, your whole arm, your upper arm. Um, again, it's about uh, movement, um, your own movement in relation to the, the work of art. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on. Um, and in, in writing about all this, I, I wanted to avoid this kind of stereotype, uh, stereotype that, or the myth really, that um, blind people get compensated with extrasensory uh, touch perception, uh, which doesn't, you know, is not neurologically true. But I would argue that my experience or experience of other other blind people who do this sort of thing, uh, it, it directs your attention in a different way. And so I've tried to kind of systematize what I'm doing. What What is my approach when I'm given the opportunity to touch a work of art and to, to sort of have a first and foremost sort of a sense of, of what does what does the sculpture want me to do? And then I have, as, as you say, a kind of toolkit, a kind of sequence of, of possible interactions that may uh, yield something interesting. I was so struck by this because I'm thinking about my graduate training when I was a teaching assistant. And one of the very first things we would do in intro classes is do something called formal analysis. We'd walk our students through how to look at a work of art, how to describe line and color and how these things contribute to meaning and composition. And in reading this essay, I was it was so obvious to me that how absent other forms of aesthetic appreciation are from teaching. So I was thinking too how valuable this kind of, of toolkit, these strategies would be for early students of art and art history. Yeah, I'll add to that. You know, I, I'm I'm coming at at this as the uh, as a, a blind person who's kind of made a deliberate. Uh, you know, I've educated myself in in what I'm doing, um, but I think also other people, other museum professionals, it could be brought into these conversations. 
the, 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 the conservation people know a lot about the, the you know, touch aspects of, of all types of art. Um, and they're really interesting people to talk to. Art handlers, uh, the people who carry the, the stuff around and hang it on the wall or put it on a plinth or whatever, they know a lot about uh, these issues. I've had the experience in, in, of touch tours in museums. You know, a lot of times they, um, they only have the touch tours on days when the museum is closed. And I think they do that um, really because if, if someone sees somebody touching the art, everybody wants to touch. I think that that's so interesting because you've written, and, and maybe we can get into this now, about the separation of touch tours and tours for the blind from broader museum experiences. And and you've you've written about the issues around not integrating these experiences across the museum public. And, and so I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on that. There's a tension between you know, that, that museums sort of want to manage different populations. And so, you know, they, they offer touch tours to blind people, but they want to sort of control it, uh, you know, at a special time or, uh, you know, sort of in a special gallery. Um, so there's a feeling of segregation, uh, you know, okay, this is only, this is available to blind people, but only on every, you know, second Tuesday when the moon is full or whatever. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's, it's not as if a blind person could just walk into a museum and say, okay, let me get my hands on things. There, I, I know a lot of blind people who are not, um, as enamored of touch tours as I am because they feel conspicuous. They feel like they don't know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, sometimes they feel rushed. Uh, you know, they feel like, okay, this is, this is a sort of, uh, obligation that the museum is, is offering this to me. And so I have to do it, but I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing here. Um, so it's not as if every blind person immediately know, you know, has, has an interest in doing this. The, the way you describe this mutually beneficial relationship among audiences is, I think, so, so convincing. I'll segue now into your writing on audio tours because that's such an interesting use of the audio tour as a guided touch tour. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the place of audio tours and um, some of your impressions. Well, I'm very interested in uh, words and images and how they work together or don't work together. And, you know, is an image worth a thousand words and, you know, um, uh, what do we do with those thousand words? And I think, um, you know, nowadays, uh, audio tours at museums for everybody are so ubiquitous. Um, and then on top of that, there's all sorts of verbal description uh, available on webs. You know, you can go to the website and get all sorts of verbal description about uh, an exhibit or specific pieces. Uh, so on and so forth. Um, and all of that is, is good. Um, I, generally speaking, I'm, I'm engaged by um, efforts that bring different perspectives into description. 
So, you know, it's one thing to have kind of the expert perspective of the curator or an art historian or even the artist um, talking about a work. And that's, that's interesting to me, but I'm also interested to hear, you know, other people's impressions. Um, it, it also speaks to the fact, you know, when I go to museums, typically I'm with people, you know, people I know. And the people I know I go to museums with have some, some sort of advanced knowledge of what, what I want to know. So our conversations are very focused. Um, but it would be nice to sort of collect kind of different levels of description. One thing I've noticed during the pandemic, of course, museums, <laughs> like everybody else, had to figure out how to how to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And so they really amped up their online programming. And I noticed that, um, you know, a lot of museums had uh, gallery talks and curator talks and, and, and so on and so forth of uh, collections. And I was amused and pleased to notice though that even though they were not necessarily aiming their words at a blind and visually impaired audience they were employing techniques uh, you know the sort of um, best practices of audio description for blind people um and i think it's because you know they knew that even the highest resolution digital image of a work of art is not the same as being in person. So I think, you know, going forward, it's, you know, it's, it's useful to think about how can you leverage these practices that came about during the pandemic and um, uh, use them in ongoing um, development of audio programming uh, in museums. Your writing about audio descriptions has shaped my own discussions about my exhibition and teaching more generally, because I think about friends who, who are lay people when it comes to works of art, and I don't always start with a careful description of the work itself, which is beneficial to everyone. And in fact, as you point out, descriptions aren't neutral. They're not a given. And so to present that as my perspective, and, and as you say, even better to incorporate multiple descriptions, it's a really brilliant way to start talking about a work of art for, for any audience. I think the, the whole um, understanding of audio description is, is developing. And the, you know, the idea, but there, there was this expectation that somehow you could produce an objective description and it's it's impossible and i and it, i don't think it's desirable you know uh i mean any the first words that come out of your mouth are already interpretation you say at the center of the image well what do you mean at the center in the image is it the dead center of the canvas or is it what where your eye goes first you know and then where your eye goes first is not necessarily where somebody else's eye goes first. Um, I'd, I've, I've taught audio description, uh, and I often, uh, even as a sort of writing project or a 
you know, it's kind of critical thinking project with students. Often I'll show an image or there's like an image in a book or whatever. And I'll just ask, you know, what, what do you, what do you see in this? And somebody will offer a description. And initially it's sort of about being nice to the blind professor, you know, <laughs> um, but pretty soon it gets more comp. So, so somebody says, oh, I see this and that. And then the next person says, oh, I don't know if I'd call it that. I, I think it's more, you know, and each person keeps adding some, some detail and then there's some dispute and then there's, you know, some resolution and, uh, somebody's reminded of something else and, and people start using metaphors and so on and so forth. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of along the lines of this very big topic of the pandemic and how, how this has changed museum practice so much, we, we have all moved to the digital. Uh, but you, you pose in, in More Than Meets the Eye a sort of rhetorical question that if audio guides or maybe by extension videos, uh, recorded experiences of museum settings are, if they're available online, quote, why should a blind person go to the museum? Or perhaps mm -hmm. why, should, why should anyone go uh, to a museum? I mean, it's a big question. And I know it's a question on the minds of museums around the world because, you know, they've been shuttered. And now it's like, well, do people really want to come back inside? And mm -hmm. if there's all this material available on websites and so on youtube um do you really want to go to museums um i mean for me uh, as i said before you know i like museums i like i like the environment i like the idea of this this public space you know that somehow belongs to the public um you know, it doesn't matter how good the, the digital imagery is. Um, standing in front of a painting and aware of its size and shape is significant. It's, it's part of the experience of art. Um, the other thing is about um, engagement with other human beings in three-dimensional space, you know. So I'm I'm going to present perhaps a concluding question. I wanted to ask you if you have a memory of a meaningful personal encounter, physical encounter with a work of art that you'd be willing to share. It was at MoMA in New York. And the way they did touch tours, um, and I, I don't know what they're doing now, but they, they basically, you, you make a reservation in advance and they assign you your own personal docent, um, which is very nice because it means that, you know, you show up and at a point of tenant and there was a person and she was a graduate student at Columbia in uh, art history. And, you know, before we did anything, we had a conversation and, and which was useful for both of us to say, here's what I know, here's what I want us to, to experience today, you know, um, so that, that she could tailor the experience to, to me. And we were looking at, there's a series of um, heads, sculptures by Matisse. Uh, they're called the Heads of Jeanette, was the name of the, um, the model. And, you know, there's one that's very representational, it's very naturalistic. And then each of them becomes increasingly abstracted. 
And the narrative that she told me, which I think is, is uh, sort of the received knowledge about these pieces, is that Matisse was working out how to do abstraction in a two-dimensional projection, so in a painting. But to do that, he wanted to start with a three-dimensional object. And so touching these, these, um, these heads in succession was really um, very interesting and engaging to me. It was really, and sort of to imagine how the artist went from this thing that I could wrap my hands around to then putting it in a, in a two-dimensional version. Um, so I was uh, doing this gesture of where I, I had my hands around the head, and then I was trying to open up my hands to make them flat to figure out how, how he was thinking. And it was pleasurable, and it was, I mean, it sounds a little uh, sentimental in a way, but there is kind of a, a, a thrill you get when you say, my hands are where the artist's hands once were, you know. Uh, you know, I'm touching my 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 palms are in the same position that his his palms must have been at some point, and it, um, so that's something you know. The memory of that is still in my hands, and it's 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 still very significant and and uh, stays with me. Georgina, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a very meaningful conversation. And you've left us with this very productively critical and hopeful view of what museums are and what they can be. So thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Maggie. This conversation is part of the series Touching Art, Embodied Experiences in Museums, produced in conjunction with the Norton Simon Museum's exhibition, The Expressive Body, Memory, Devotion, Desire, 1400 to 1750, on view October 15, 2021 through March 7, 2022. Additional conversations with David Howes, co-director of the Center for Sensory Studies at Concordia University, Montreal, and Veronica Alvarez, the Wallace Annenberg Director of Community Arts Partnership at CalArts, are available at nortonsimon.org.